Okay, uh, as, as many of you know, since you've heard me preach on several occasions, uh, it's a little bit weird, certainly for me, uh, to, to, to guest preach. Uh, I like to preach in series. And so choosing individual sermons as it relates to wherever a church is at is always a, a distinct and weird responsibility for me. Uh, and so uh, tonight, uh, we're going to uh, simply preach, uh, we're going to go through one of my favorite texts in the Bible. Uh, I'm particularly uh, excited about it. I love this text. I love all of the things that are going on in here, and so I'm excited to share it with you. And to start, uh, I want to read something uh, for you, over you, uh, that, that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. This is how he starts his letter to a church in a, in a major metropolitan area. He has these just beautiful things to say to them. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, I share these affections for scum uh, that, that the Paul shares to the church in Philippi. So I'm going to read it for you. He says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you're all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through him to the glory and praise of God. Okay, so the, uh, Paul writes this beautiful letter. It's four chapters long. There's several famous coffee cup verses from Philippians that at a minimum you've heard before if you've stepped foot in the church. Um, and, and, and it's clear, it's evident throughout the whole letter that Paul feels this deep, passion, this deep love for this church. Uh, in fact, it's one of his most tame letters. It's one of his least aggressive, least, uh, least fixing oriented letters. It's largely encouraging and speaking good truth and good theology. And so today where we're actually going to spend time is not there. Uh, we're going we're to spend time in Acts chapter 16. And here's why. Uh, the church in Philippi begins in Acts 16. So that church that we just read uh, about uh, starts from the very beginning uh, here in Acts chapter 16. So that's where we're going to be in just a couple of minutes. Uh, so it's in this well-known city named Philippi, and, uh, and Paul's got this beautiful affection for them. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I want to uh, get a little bit more uh, contemporary, because what we're going to juxtapose, we're going to look at that church, we're going to see how does this church start, why does Paul feel so strongly and so passionate about them, and we're going to juxtapose that with us here tonight. We're going we're to say, okay, well, what are they doing right, and, and what can we glean from that? What can we learn from that uh, for us today in 2019, Scum of the Earth Church, Denver, Colorado? What, what does it look like? Um, so let's get a little bit more contemporary. Um, I assume, unless this is your first day in public, 
I assume that, that, that almost everybody in here is at least moderately familiar with uh, the, I think, fairly obvious racial tensions in our country. They're, they're explicit. They're everywhere. Um, it's virtually constant. Uh, there's obviously the issue of police relations. That comes up every couple of months. There's the state of the prison system. Uh, that's a popular topic right now. And there's the rhetoric that happens at the top levels of our government, of our political system. Racial tensions come up repeatedly, and, and I think we're just getting warmed up. I, th I think that issue is going to continue uh, on into the future. But increasingly, I think that racial tensions in our country are becoming a personal issue for everyone. Uh, so I, th I think uh, we hear all this rhetoric, we hear all this noise talked about race relations, uh, but I think increasingly it's becoming personal. And so I'll, t I'll give you a couple of examples uh, from my life a couple of years ago that happened within a small window of each other. Okay, first was the most uh, legitimate time I ever got pulled over in my life. Absolutely legitimate. I was taking my now wife, uh, so we were, I was in college, I was taking my now wife uh, out for one of our first dates. It was one of our first, just us, going out together it was one of our first dates, and, uh, and, and we were going to the movies. I, I don't remember what we saw, uh, but we were going to the movies. And, and on the way to the movies, we stopped to get some ice cream, which was great. Uh, and then from the movies, or excuse me, from the ice cream to the movies, it was probably about a five-minute drive. And a couple of things. Number one, it's nighttime. Number two, I don't know where I am. And so I'm using a GPS. So uh, have grace for this, how stupid I'm about to look. So I, I, I'm following the GPS down this road, and, and this is in Pennsylvania, it's not here, and, and I'm headed down this road, and, and pretty suddenly, you know how GPSs can occasionally give you information later than it's helpful. So on one particular, on this occasion, I, I'm, I'm driving to the movie theater, and, and I pull up to a light, and evidently, uh, even though I'm in the left lane of a three-lane road, I'm supposed to turn right at this light because if I go through the light it turns into a highway I, I don't know why so it's it's do or die and I'm, I'm it's nighttime and I'm like oh I gotta <laughs> I gotta get over like right now and uh, here's the good news I look around me I look in my, my mirrors I don't I don't see anything so just turn on my turn signal wait for a second just I don't know for posterity and then I pull into the middle lane but, <laughs> unfortunately, there was a car in my blind spot. So I pull in front of, basically horizontally, I pull in front of a car. I'm like, darn it, I, I, you know, I look like an idiot, but it is what it is. Keep going, because I still have to turn right. Stop again. My turn signal's on the whole time. Get into the right turn lane, and then pull in. Well, guess what? The car in my blind spot was a police officer. And can you just imagine what he must have been thinking? Like how stupid this person in front of him had to have looked. And so, rightfully, justifiably, he turns on his lights, follows me in to this parking lot, and I, uh, I pull into this random parking lot. And he comes out, and he's given me all kinds of mood. He is not pleased with how dumb I just was. Uh, and I, you know, it is what it is. I, I earned that one. Uh, and, and so I give him all of my stuff, and, and, and it is, you know, I just got to deal with the consequences. He goes back to his car, 
And he's filing it away. My, my wife at the time was like, it's okay if you don't want to go to the movie. I understand it's stressful. We can go back. I'm like, no, we're going to the movie. We're almost there. Uh, and, and sure enough, this police officer walks back up to me and, is, and it's like, I don't know what happened. I don't know what good news he got in his car, but he came back up to me and it was like we were friends. He just handed me my stuff and said, yeah, no problem. You get a warning. Movie theater's right down the street. And I was so confused and so thankful. Well, fast forward just a, a couple of months, and, and a friend of mine, whose name is Josh, uh, was driving home from school. And Josh is also a pastor. And, and he got pulled over uh, in the Midwest, driving between states. You're almost guaranteed to get pulled over. You could be driving under the speed limit. They'll tell you you're going 20 over. It's not abnormal in the Midwest. And so he got pulled over for speeding. And uh, for no obvious reason, after a few minutes, the officer had Josh get out of his car so he could inspect it. And uh, Josh, who's black, kind of gently called him on it to which he was uh, given aggressive, threatening behavior. Then they nearly arrested him. Racial tensions are a real thing and becoming increasingly personal. So for me, just a couple months after my just idiot behavior, I'm then seeing the flip side of it happen. And here's why all of this matters for today's text. Christians ought to be on the forefront of racial reconciliation and and really all reconciliation in the world. The gospel stands in opposition to man-made barriers. And before we dive into the text, just one quick other contextual piece. Back in that thing I read at the beginning from Philippians chapter 1, there's a promise. It's in verse 6. Paul says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Right? All of the things we're about to talk about, all of the things that got you into the room tonight, those things are God's work, principally. Only God can do that stuff. We don't have the capacity or really the desire for it. So, So if you're struggling about some things, the worst thing you can do is just give up. It doesn't make any sense. Keep asking. Keep walking. God's in pursuit of you. He's bringing about this work in you. He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So Acts chapter 16, we're going to read it in three separate chunks. We're going to look at what become the very first Christians in the city of Philippi the very first Christians. And here's what I want you to be looking for as we get going. Paul and his friends who are, who are doing various ministry endeavors together, they've just come out of a conference called the Jerusalem Council. They're visiting churches that they've planted. They're starting some new ones as they get going. And here's what you should need to be looking for. How does God go after these people? Who are they and how does God go after them? All right, Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 10. Let's get going. It says this, And when Paul had seen a vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
So, setting sail from Troas, we, we, we made a direct voyage from Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Okay, that is the very first Christian, the very first follower of Jesus Christ in a major metropolitan area called Philippi. And she's got a name. Her name is Lydia. A couple of takeaways before we talk about Lydia is number one, and you'll see this in all three stories. That's why I'm bringing it up now. Number one, this is a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty and his pursuit, which was in the promise I originally talked about. Because think about all of the things that had to happen and all of the things that had to go right for number one, Lydia to be by the riverside that morning. She's not even from Philippi. She's from Thyatira. She's got another place in Philippi. And she's there that particular Sabbath day trying to worship with a group of friends. And on the flip side, think about all the things that had to happen for Paul to get him, him there that day. Right? God had to give him a vision saying, go to this place. I've got somebody for you to meet. And so you've got this picture of God's sovereignty. If you're a Christian tonight, that's your story too. That's my story too. God orchestrating my life and the lives of the people around me in such a way that he could reveal himself to me. That's the first kind of takeaway there. And you'll see it in each of these stories. But also, and I think this is consequential, uh, the first Christian in Philippi is a gifted and successful woman. God is not afraid of gifted women, and neither is Paul, contrary to his reputation. The very first Christian is this woman, Lydia. And so let's talk about her for just a second. What can we see about Lydia from, from these few verses? Well, first, you see it right there. She's a lady that fears God in some capacity. She, she, she understands that there is a God, and she, uh, to some extent, wants to know him, but she doesn't have a relationship with him. Right? She's going to what is the equivalent of a weekly Bible study, trying to figure things out, but she just isn't there yet. And that may be true for some of you. You may just be visiting for the first time. You may have been coming around for a little while, but it hasn't become true for you yet. That's, that's where she's coming from. Simultaneous to that, as I said, she's this super successful sort of fashion lady. We don't know exactly what seller, seller of purple goods means, but in all likelihood, it means she's in the fashion industry and in the fabric industry, which was lucrative at that point. Right? She's got a house in Thyatira, big city. She's got a house in Philippi, big city. It, right, it'd be similar to being, having a house in L.A. and Paris. Right, so she's successful. She understands that there's a God. And then how 
did God go after her? How does God pursue this woman? You see it through reason, through communication. Paul explained things to her about Jesus. He filled in the blanks of the questions that she was having. And God opens her heart. And she receives it. And Lydia becomes the first Christian and the first church member of Philippi. All right, let's keep moving. We'll pick it up, Acts 16, verse 16 this time. Let's meet the second Christian in this city. It says this, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying aloud, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, in one of the most honest statements in Scripture, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. It's a really fascinating little story. But a couple of observations again before we talk about this slave girl in particular is who in that little story, who principally stands in opposition to the exploitation that's going on? God does. God does. Right? God opposes exploitation. It's, it's, it's part of the promise of the hope of the gospel that justice will be had in the long run. Justice is God's and he will take it over against evil. And here you get a small picture of it. And it's, it's, it's funny to me how God uses uh, the quirks of humanity to bring about his will. It took Paul becoming annoyed for it to happen. This girl's following them around, mocking them through the spirits that are inside of her, mocking the things that they're doing, mocking the things that they're teaching. And eventually Paul's like, I can't do this anymore. Get out of her. And God powerfully removes these spirits from this girl. And that leads me to the second thing. God, not just, it's not just that he opposes exploitation. God has the power to do that. He has power over spiritual forces. And one of my favorite things, uh, personal thing, one of my favorite things about scum is that there are stories not unlike that in the room right now. There are stories of people in this church who have been freed from demonic influence, who have been freed from dark spiritual forces. That's in the room with you right now. People who have experienced a very similar salvation story. God opposes exploitation and he has the power over it. So, let's look a little bit more closely at the slave girl. What do we see about her in this text? Well, first, we see that she is dependent. 
She's dependent on both the demons and her owners. She's dependent. She's, she's following them around. She's doing their bidding. She doesn't think for herself in this text at all. Frankly, I think uh, it, it, it screams of desperation. There's this desperation within her, trying to appease her masters, trying to appease this demon. Furthermore, she's got nothing. She has nothing. And this, in many ways, this, she stands in stark contrast to Lydia. Lydia, this, this eminently successful woman with, with houses and influence, and this girl with nothing dependent upon others for everything. And yet, how does God go after her? How does God go after her? Well, it's a Holy Spirit act of power. It's an, it, it, that's all you can say about it. It, it wasn't through reason. <laughs> she wasn't listening to any of the things that they were saying. It was through God using his servant to, to remove the demon. A Holy Spirit act of power. It couldn't have happened in any other way. And uh, there is some debate, uh, as a theologian, I've got to put my cards on the table. There is some debate uh, as to whether or not the slave girl got saved or if she was just uh, uh, freed from the demons. And I think the evidence suggests uh, that she got saved. Uh, and, and it's for this reason. Elsewhere in Scripture, uh, it's in Luke 11. I'm not going to read it all to you. Um, we're given this picture of what happens when a spirit leaves somebody, when an evil spirit leaves a person. And if, in fact, that person has not been transformed by that experience, you see in Luke 11 that the spirit comes back. The spirit quickly comes back with friends and makes things worse. And in this picture, in this scenario with the slave girl, she's freed, her life is changed, and the reaction of her owners reveals, no, she's different. She's not the same. This isn't going to, uh, our source of income is over. So I think the evidence suggests that she's fundamentally different on a spiritual level. Thus, I do believe that this slave girl is the second Christian in Philippi. So the first two Christians are Lydia and a have-nothing slave girl. Okay? Immediately after this, and you see it right there, we read just a hint of it. Immediately after this, the slave girl uh, is, is freed from this demon and the owners are, are, are extraordinarily frustrated. And, and so they drag Paul and his friends out into a public setting and say, these people are ruining our business. They're basically, the claim, is, is they're disturbing the peace, is, is the, the language we'd use today. They're, they're ruining the way that we do life here. We've got to do something. And so the, the civil magistrates, they do. They, okay, fine, if, they, if that's true, then, then we'll, we'll deal with these guys. Um, and so we're going to bump ahead to they've arrested them and they're planning to throw them into jail. All right, so that's where we're going to be introduced to the third uh, Christian here in Philippi. And let's look at Acts 16, starting in verse 23. And when, and when the public had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. 
Having received his order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, for we're still here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and all two were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he, baptized, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Okay, now you've got this third Christian in Philippi. And uh, again, a couple of observations before we talk about the jailer. God doesn't just oppose exploitation of people. He also opposes oppression of people. So where people are being oppressed, God is the, the, the great uh, freer over top of it. Saying, no, 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 that's not, that's not what this is supposed to look like. And with the slave rule, you saw that God has power over spiritual forces. Casts away this demon, never to return with the jailer, you see that God has power over human forces. Right? And this is significant because this is a Roman jailer. So we're talking about the most powerful political entity in human history. Even compared to America today, Rome was truly dominant in the known world in a way that, that we could never understand now. And God is revealing here in just this brief moment that even though this has been a Roman instituted thing that these guys are going to rot in prison that he's got power over against those human influences. So uh, what can we see about the jailer from this text? Uh, I, think, I think what we can see is that the, the jailer is a fairly, he's in all likelihood a slightly older guy. So he's probably a retired military guy who's then been plugged into the jail system to go do his duty there, to go watch prisoners. He's probably either a low-level military guy or a retired military guy who is just trying to do his job. He's trying to do his job and do it well. And and I think the evidence suggests he go, he, he's taken that even a step further because his orders were, hey, take these guys and put them in, in, in jail. And so what he does is he takes those guys, goes into the jail, and then goes into the dungeon and then attaches them to the wall. Right? So he's taken those commands and he's done them to the best of his ability. I think, we, I think he's just a hardworking working normal guy. I think, I think that's what the evidence suggests. 
He's a hard-working, get-the-job-done, kind of middle-of-the-road guy. How does God go after him? Right? Lydia, through reason, through talking, through explanation. The slave girl, through a Holy Spirit act of power. And then the jailer, the jailer, God saves him through seeing what a Christian looks like through Christian behavior, through Christian activity. That's what changes his heart. Because this earthquake happens, and, and, and that's scary, and, and he knows that if his prisoners escape, then he's going to be tortured and killed, and so he goes to kill himself to save himself some future pain. But they haven't escaped. They stayed, and they stayed for him so he wouldn't kill himself. It is that Christian act of love. And he rushes in and he takes him out. And he says, what is uh, what's different about you? What do I need to do to get what you have? And he, they preach the gospel to him. They preach the gospel to him. It's a beautiful distinction between these three people and how God goes after them. And so uh, what are the takeaways? Uh, as we think about concluding this theologically and then practically, what are the takeaways? Number one, uh, God can save whoever he wants. God can save, who, God can save you. He saved me. <laughs> he can save you. God can save your runaway family member who wants nothing to do with you. God can save your uh, prone to evil behavior, friend. God can save whoever he wants, number one. Number two, God can save however he wants. God can transform people in ways that we don't fully understand. Here you've got three distinct uh, methods that God uses. Uh, first, he uses reason through one of his followers. Then he just says, I'm God and frees a girl from evil uh, spirits and then he it's christians living as christians and in each case god saves somebody he transforms them he draws them and woos them and shows them his love god is not limited by our thoughts of people which brings us back to the original point christianity overcomes all barriers and boundaries that we put up and let me be clear, only Christianity overcomes the boundaries and barriers that we put up. The gospel is more powerful than the human distinctions uh, that, that we end up building. And you see it with each of these people in this story. They come from different social classes, extraordinarily rich, extraordinarily poor and extraordinarily average. Every social class is represented. You see, ethnically, they are likely all different. Lydia's from Thyatira. The slave girl is from the area, but in distinction from the jailer, the jailer's clearly a Roman citizen. So, in all likelihood, they come from different social classes and economic classes, and they come from different ethnic backgrounds. 
Only the gospel can make Lydia, that slave girl, and that jailer not only hang out, but sing together and eat together. Only the gospel can do that. So when you're tempted to think that God can't save you or he can't transform you or you're tempted to think that God can't save that person, you are wrong. Right? When you have natural tendencies away from certain people, you are wrong. Following Christ overcomes all of those things, which means that I've got a brother in the ghetto of Asia that is every bit as close to me as now. And I've got a sister somewhere in Denver, a sick sister somewhere in Denver that I have more in common with right now than loads of other people in this city. Christianity and the gospel, the offer of Jesus Christ on the cross for you to save you, that overcomes and is bigger than everything else. Right? And it's part of what makes this so exciting. Because we are a part, as Christians, we're a part of that reconciling work between each other, between human beings. We've got the answer. It's Jesus. We've got the one solution to the problems facing humanity, and it's Jesus. Our love for Christ can and should overcome every other barrier. Right? And, 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 and so as we think about it practically for you individually and for scum together, what does it end up looking like? What does it look like for us to live out this gospel? What does it look like for us to experience this gospel? And uh, so this is coming uh, from a pastor. Uh, this is coming from somebody who uh, works, has worked in the church for uh, a while now uh, and has seen uh, the gospel meet culture in different ways. Uh, and, and number one... I think it looks like wanting better for people than they want for themselves. Right? You've probably heard me say that in here before. It's, it's really uh, what I'm saying is to love people. Wanting better for them than they want for themselves. Uh, I'll give you an example. I've got an acquaintance uh, that I hear from periodically. And lately, this acquaintance, uh, this acquaintance is not a Christian. And uh, they're coming out of a four-year romantic relationship and try and just trying to navigate the new waters. And uh, I'll put it mildly, this person is making decisions that are unwise. <laughs> they're, they're doing uh, several things sequentially that are causing further damage uh, to them. And one of the things that I've got to do as, as somebody who's trying to be a friend to this person is want better for them than they want for themselves. So, so as they're continuing this destructive behavior, I've got to be there saying, no, 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 I love you. There's something better. There's something better than that. Uh, there's better, I want better for you than, than what you're doing right now. And maybe here's what it looks like. Right? So I think that's the first thing is wanting better for people than they want for themselves. Number two and this is significant, and I think Scum does better at this than a lot of churches. Eat together. Eat together. And, and, and I mean that both just practically and also that guy right there in the middle of the room. The Lord's Supper is what I'm pointing at. <laughs> it does look like I'm pointing at you, I'm sorry. I was pointing at the table. Eat together. 
Because on the one hand, there is no greater opportunity than to love someone and be loved by someone over food. But there's also no greater opportunity to see the love of Christ than to partake in his body and his blood together. Eat together. So invite people over and be invited over. And do it as a church. And, and that's part of what the potluck after this is for. It's to, it's to activate those same principles. And then the last thing I'll say practically is continue to discern who scum is and who God's calling her to be uh, in the weeks and months to come. It's been a weird season. If you're new, you picked the right time. Because God's going to do something fresh here and it's going to be awesome. I really do believe that. And I know one of those things is going to be preaching the word. Having the word of God preached here and in your lives outside of here. That's the other way uh, that we get to apply this. All right? So going back to Philippians 1, that initial thing I read, of course Paul loves them. In the same, the same affection I've got for you guys, of course Paul loves them. He's talking to Lydia. He's wondering if she's become a leader in the church. He's talking to the slave girl. He's wondering what sort of healing she's gone through in the aftermath of all of that pain. He's talking to the jailer, wondering if he's let go a little bit of holding on so tightly and, and, and focusing so fiercely on stuff, right? He's talking to people he knows, real people that God transformed, and the same is happening around us, and I believe that's what God longs for scum to continue to do, all right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this night. Thank you for your love. Thank you... Uh, that you overcome the boundaries we like to build between us and you and between each other. Jesus, you've got the power to tear those things down. You've got the power to give us new life, transformed life, to make us fundamentally different than we were yesterday. And so we ask that you do that tonight, maybe for the first time for some of us, or, or rekindle that love here tonight. Now we ask that you will make Scum of the Earth Church a beacon of that love, of your gospel power in Denver. It has been for decades to this point, and we long to see it happen for many more decades to come. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.